The Blunt Post with Vic. Good morning, happy Monday, and welcome to The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, the editor and publisher of The Blunt Post. The Blunt Post with Vic is a program that covers national, regional, and local headline news, offers analysis and commentary, and I interview members of Congress, local elected officials, and other high-profile public figures. Good morning, and thanks for joining us on The Blunt Post with Vic. Uh, later on the show, you will hear my interview with Pari Ibrahim, who is the founder and executive director of the Free Izidi Foundation. I'm your host, Vic Jaramie, here in the studio with my producer, Ricky Herrera. Good Monday morning, Ricky. Good morning, Vic. How are you, man? Happy Labor Day. I'm well. Happy Labor Day. Yeah, we're laboring <laughs> on Labor Day, and it's uh, grateful to be able to do this. Got lots to talk about. I'm going to just go right into something that just sort of touched me. I was reading some local publications online and I came across a story about uh, the costume shop that I have uh, rented costumes from for the last like 15 years, you know, whether it was Halloween or some special party or event or whatnot. Uh, there's just this great group of people. It's called Valentino's uh, Costume Group in North Hollywood. And uh, the story was about how the strike, the Hollywood strike, whether it's the Writers Guild or SAG-AFTRA, et cetera, how it's affecting so many other related industries uh, and people are suffering, and uh, including uh, Valentino's costume group. That was just not a good feeling because I know them well. I've known them for a long time. And there's so many like that. You know, there are catering companies that are suffering. There's post-production companies and uh, all kinds of related industries that rely on uh, film and television production that are uh, silent or have lost most of their work. You know, it's just a reality of it. And this isn't about by no means against the strikes at all. I, I believe in, in strikes and I believe in uh, people asking for what they deserve. Uh, this is just a, just a reality check of how far, how far, far reaching the consequences are. So. The chain reaction of change I was thinking about it. And I know several people in the, the customer service industry, uh, catering that are all being affected by this, by this strike. And it's, it sucks, but it's like you said, it's one of those harsh realities when, when one industry is down, it's inevitable. It's going to affect other industries. So let's get behind these writers. Let's do what we can vocal support. Yeah, a lot of people on social media show that support, uh, and maybe these bigwigs will kind of wake up and do something about it. Exactly. Maybe they'll, they'll cut a few million from their annual bonuses. So let's go to TikTok, second largest, most popular social media uh, platform after uh, YouTube. So I know you, you've got some news on that. Yeah, Vic, I, I know our KPFK listeners are big TikTok users. Well, whether or not you're a TikTok user, I've just found this approach by people in Washington, uh, this approach to this particular social media company, very interesting since these rumblings uh, started earlier this year, uh, back in the spring. Um, 
anyone kind of following this story knows that the the TikTok ban has kind of died down and insiders uh stories i've read this is being caused by obviously we have a, a big election coming up the way they phrased it were more sexier issues the republicans are attaching themselves to which lends itself to why the momentum for this tiktok ban has quieted down tiktok they went on a a huge PR tear when these rumblings started. There was a spot that aired during the GOP presidential debate. It featured a a veteran. The ad uh, surrounded how he used TikTok to raise thousands of dollars for other vets, their struggles, particularly with mobility. And the ad was entitled Changing Lives. And one irritated Republican strategist admitted that the ads have clearly been effective. So, and then another reason this TikTok ban hasn't really gone anywhere in terms of legislation or anything is because there are several bills floating around out there, and there's not a primary one that Republicans can kind of get behind. I just think it's uh, I think it's fascinating, particularly how popular TikTok is, and we'll see where this goes. No, it's it's too popular. It's too popular and there's only so much you can control in cyberspace. And of course, I think Republicans are definitely distracted by other things, including by Trump, either in a good way or bad way. Yeah. So moving on, Vic, uh, I came across a pretty interesting poll. So in the spirit of Labor Day, I kind of wanted to talk about it. According to a survey conducted by one poll, over 2,000 American adults participated in this survey. So anyways, did you know that the average American employee has not had a raise in three years? I didn't know, but I suspected, and it's not a surprise to me. Uh, it's not a surprise to me. And, and not only that's kind of ridiculous, but when you think about especially inflation in the last year, you just see the unfairness of that even more. There were a couple of other interesting um, notes that came out of this poll conducted by one poll. So some top concerns in the workforce, uh, for instance, uh, Gen Z is concerned about the nationwide worker strikes more than they are about lack of job, job security. So that was 69% versus 49% of Gen Zers. Meanwhile, half a millennial surveyed were more worried about salary cuts than wage gaps and worker strikes. Gen Z and boomer generations, however, they did have uh, some similarities when it came to job security. Oh, one more fact I wanted to throw out there. Almost six in 10 working men believe their current salary is influenced by their gender. This what does that mean? Well, I think that means that the disparity between men and women in the workforce in terms of oh. salary and pay. Also, oh, they're <laughs> accepting the fact that women are paid less for the same work that they do. Not that they're accepting the fact. They, it's, they're just cognizant of it. Okay. Gotcha. Hmm. Interesting. Anyways, uh, speaking of wages, Vic, last Friday, I'm going to go local here, uh, lo the Los Angeles City Council. Some of the members, uh, they're launching an effort to address wage theft in Los Angeles. 
Council members Hugo Soto Martinez, he's been on this show, and Tim McCosker uh, said they introduced a package of legislation aiming to improve enforcement of wage and hourly violations across the city. The motions, from what I've read, they also aim to improve uh, kind of the uh, the coordination between uh, city departments and just kind of improve the the response and uh, support outreach uh, for victims of wage theft. So I got a quote from Hugo Soto Martinez. Um, He said, this package is incredible. The motions that will begin the process of ending Los Angeles's reputation as the wage theft capital of the United States. He continued to say, together, this legislation will bring justice to working people who are facing and going up against corporate greed. End quote. Wow. So- yeah, victims of wage theft, Vic, the estimated loss is uh, 12.5% of take-home pay every single year. And, of course, the victims are inevitably lower-wage workers, uh, people of color, immigrants, just the the people that are kind of taken advantage of uh, across the spectrum and in so many different uh, facets of of life so this is no surprise that wage theft is is one of them yeah absolutely it reminds me of a few years ago i was reading this story how some car wash owners are so they they hire people to work minimum wage like let's say the morning shift but then uh, for whatever reason, they tell them for a few hours they don't need them, but then they can pick up their shift like in three or four hours. So these people you know, can't go home in that short amount of time. So they just kind of sit there uh, not getting paid and then they continue to work a few hours later. And if you really factor that in, it means they were paid below minimum wage, you know, for for especially for something that's, I mean, below minimum wage, no one should be paid that, especially these people who are, you know, working really hard under the sun to like do manual labor. Uh, So yeah, we've got lots to fix. You know, I am definitely for a national minimum wage of 25 bucks and much higher than that in California. Otherwise, it's not a living wage. There's just no way. When you when you think that every study says people living minimum wage or getting minimum wage cannot afford a one bedroom apartment in any of our 50 states. That's ridiculous. Yeah, it's ridiculous. And I just want to applaud these council members for for just trying for trying to improve the quality of life for people to hold corporations accountable. Absolutely. I just applaud these these council members for for trying. We'll see. Anyways, so Vic, you have a very informative interview coming up. You want to tell us a little bit about yeah. it? Yeah, this is really great. Um, it's a great uh, interview. Good to speak with um, Hari Ibrahim, who is the founder and executive director of the Free Izidi Foundation. Izidis are a unique uh, ethnic group with their own unique religion that have lived millennia in the areas of Turkey and Iraq. Uh, Iran, etc. And uh, there was a genocide against the Yazidi people in 2014 by ISIS uh, that was just devastating. So uh, Pari Ibrahim and I 
uh, speak about that. Cool. Stay tuned. The Blunt Post with Vic. Hello, dear friends of KPFK. My husband, Blaise Bonpane, and I became supporters and contributors to KPFK in 1969. All of this startling and non-startling historical events that have happened since then, and there were so many, made us constantly go to KPFK so we would be better informed and activated. So many times we said, we need KPFK more than ever, and we always did rely on them. Today, more than ever, ever, we need KPFK. We all know that, and we all must do everything we can to keep KPFK alive and vital. Blaze would look down on us with his smile as we do so. Thank you, Teresa Bonpane. a lot to be thankful for. If you're thankful for the old family vehicle, you can let it help one more time by donating it to the KPFK Vehicle Donation Program. The proceeds will help KPFK continue the quality programming you depend on throughout the year. The vehicle donation number is 877-KPFK-AUTO. That's 877-573-5288. Our representative will take care of everything. That number again is 877-KPFK-AUTO or donate online at kpfk.org. Greetings, sisters and brothers. This is Robbie D. In 1989, I was shooting the documentary First Strike, Portrait of an Activist. My attempts at getting any sort of news coverage for the heroic acts of Katya Kamsarik breaking into Vandenberg Air Force Base and destroying several Navstar guidance systems went nowhere. There was not one print, television, or radio outlet that would advise the public of this disarmament action that was in full compliance with international law. Nobody, that is, except for KPFK. Our brave and wise radio station broke the news embargo. The subsequent press coverage allowed the public to learn of the illegal U.S. policy of first-strike targeting of other nations with nuclear weapons. Never underestimate the importance of a genuine free press KPFK is the real deal. Peace out. This is Stanley Clark. Free Speech Radio can't survive without your generous support. Become a KPFK sustaining member now by pledging $1 a day at kpfk.org. Become a sustaining member. Your donation is tax deductible and membership has its privileges. I am a member, so join me, Stanley Clark, in keeping independent radio alive. Donate to KPFK at kpfk.org and do it today. Smith, and you're listening to Fiercely Independent Pacifica Radio, KPFK 90.7 FM. People have the power. The Blunt Post with Vic. Ari Ibrahim is the founder and executive director of the Free Izidi Foundation, 
Pari is a is an Yazidi woman originally from Iraq. Uh, she fled Iraq as a child with her family in 1991 uh, during the Saddam Hussein regime. Eventually. Uh, resettling in the Netherlands, Pari created the Free Izidi Foundation to support Izidi survivors in the aftermath of the Izidi genocide perpetrated by ISIS. Good morning, Pari. Thank you for being on the Blancos with Vic this morning. How are you today? Thank you very much for having me here. Um, I really appreciate uh, you doing this interview. Oh, the pleasure is all mine. Um, I'm I'm super grateful. Uh, I think. This is an interview way uh, overdue. I think, um, you know, much like Armenians have for decades tried to sort of uh, get the world's attention, uh, Izidis are, are in the same boat and people need to know. Uh, you are, of course, the executive director of the Free Izidi uh, Foundation. And so we're going to talk about, you know, all of this. There's so much I think people don't know, but once they do, it's... Uh, it's, it's really an eye-opener of how the recent history of Izidi people ties into U.S. foreign policy, how we created and we encouraged ISIS or Daesh and, and then betrayed uh, the people. And then we started fighting them and then we betrayed the people who were helping us. And as a result and consequences, uh, Izidi people paid a very heavy price. Um, but I want to go back to um, setting a little bit of context and background for those who may not be familiar with Izidi people. And you can cut me off and correct me whenever I'm wrong. Izidi people go back to, uh, I think, 7th or 8th century. Um, you are a very unique um, uh, culture of its own. You speak Kurdish, and but the religion, the Izidi religion, is a little bit of a mix of, of Islam, Christianity and Zoroastrian. Is that accurate? Yeah, I think that a lot of religions have like some commonalities um, that are similar or a little bit different. But in general, yes, there's a lot of commonalities with other uh, religions as well. Right. And uh, is it is uh, settled or, or were always um, around what is now Iraq, Syria, Turkey, Iran in that region? But more so in Iraq than anywhere else, correct? That is correct. I think uh, over many years, um, and Yazidis are not uh, just one of a kind, right? Like over the years, uh, people are scattered if uh, they fear for their life, if they have to constantly uh, uh, run for being attacked for who they are. Same thing with Yazidis, same thing with the Armenians. Our people were the first inhabitants, like one of the first inhabitants of, of these areas. But unfortunately, they are now so spread. Like you can find Yazidis in Georgia. You can find Yazidis in Armenia, in uh, uh, Russia that go like many, many years back. And that has something to do with being constantly persecuted because of who you are. But yes, originally from this area and scattered around the world over these centuries. Absolutely. This is the Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. Uh, I am your host, Vic Jarami, and you are listening to my interview with Pari Ibrahim, who is the founder and executive director of the Free Izidi Foundation. We are discussing uh, the genocide uh, against the Izidi people 
uh, perpetrated by ISIS in 2014 and much more. Is it the diaspora all over the world? Uh, not by choice most of the time, but by uh, circumstance, tragic circumstances. Um, of course, there was the Izidi genocide that sort of started in, in 2014 by ISIS, that even the United Nations claims took about 5,000 Izidis. Most believe it was way over 10,000, somewhere around 4,000 Izidis, including 3,000 women, are still un unaccounted for. There was mass um, abduction of girls and women uh, into slavery and abuse and murder. Mass graves that were found later, uh, just horrendous, horrendous things that one uh, expects to read from the Middle Ages. But this was uh, not too long ago. This was literally less than 10 years ago that this happened. Uh, I'm going to let you talk about that because uh, you do it way better than I would. Thank you. I think maybe we should like take a few steps back as to how the Islamic State started to exist. So it is well known that like in Iraq, there's constantly things happening. There's constantly fear in people's life about uh, where will their next meal come from? Will they be alive tomorrow to take care of their kids? How will the future of their children look like? So that's just in general in the Middle East, there's a lot always happening. I think that from Al-Qaeda, and the vacuum that existed after the fall of the of Saddam Hussein regime, the vacuum that then existed created a space for those who who were um, uh, very quickly able to be brainwashed by others, and from Al Qaeda grew the Islamic State, and I think a lot of people were surprised how quickly it actually went. But it this was ongoing for many years, and of course the Yazidis had heard at one point about the Islamic State. They knew what the Islamic State was capable of doing. And of course, the Yazidis were afraid for their life because the Islamic State sees Yazidis as devil worshippers. They do not appear in the book, the Quran, their holy book. And they are so-called, the Yazidis are so-called infidels and they should not exist. Over many, many years, Yazidis were always attacked, but by other groups, other names. This time it was the Islamic State. So in August 2014, on the 3rd of August, the Islamic State came with one specific goal, and that was the eradication of the Yazidi community. Islamic State was very clear in what they were doing. They were not hiding that they were committing a genocide against the Yazidis. Right. They were very clear. They had their own magazine, the Dabiq. In some of the magazines, they clearly state why they were allowed to uh, uh, kidnap Yazidi women and enslave Yazidi women. It is very unfortunate that the dangers that created the genocides, the, the root causes, that they were not prevented. So, as I said, the Islamic State did not come out of nowhere. The ideology that the Islamic State was spreading was already there. So the Yazidis always knew that people would not eat their food, that people always thought that they were those who shouldn't exist or those who believe in the devil, those who shouldn't eat their food from. So this ideology lived already among the people in Iraq, in the Middle East, that Yazidis were the devil worshippers. And when you have that, and the none of the governments do anything to prevent that kind of uh, uh, spread 
of of lies and uh, 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 hatred, at some point something will happen. So this we say this was the seventy fourth genocide against the Yazidi community. When the Islamic State came, they immediately killed the men and they kidnapped the women and children. We do a lot of work on just and accountability, which is funded by the U.S. government. We try to see what happened to our people, what crimes were committed, who committed those crimes against our people, what are their names, or what nom de guerre did they have? Did they use different names while they were within ISIS? But also, where were our people brought? How were they brought and transferred to different places? It is so important because, yes, it is true that at some point support for the Yazidi community came. The U.S. government said this could constitute genocide and they came uh, uh, to start to fight against Islamic State and then the coalition came together. We're very grateful for those who came on the mountains, the YPG and others that came and opened the corridor for the Yazidi community to go off of the mountain where they were for a few days without food and water because the Islamic State was coming to kill them. So they ran towards the mountain, those who could flee. But those who were unfortunately captured, they were or killed or captured and transferred to Mosul or they were transferred to Syria. When you hear the stories of these women, you can't imagine that in the 21st century, we just stand by and we allow these things to happen. It is now nine years on and still thousands and thousands of women and children are in captivity. And I'm saying in captivity because they are too afraid to say who they are because they are in captivity in with the Islamic states. The ideology lift, lives forth, even though the Islamic state is militarily defeated. I recently went to Al-Hol camp to see what are the possibilities of rescuing these Yazidi women. I think I opened a lot of eyes when I went to Al-Hol camp because people thought it's like impossible. And I was asking uh, the management there, like, is it possible to find Yazidi women? We have identification of like Yazidis. We have the numbers of their tent. We know that they are married off to ISIS members. Um, they have children. We want to make sure that they understand that if they want to come back, they can come back and we need to provide them with the care that they need. If they want to keep their child, they should be able to have that right to keep their child. So our organization is very much women focused. So women's rights above everything else. But it is just unfortunate that there's not a lot of interest from the international community to save these women. It is as if we have accepted that slavery in the 21st century is normal. Being kidnapped is normal because nobody cares. Um, this would not be the case if, uh, as, a, as a Guardian uh, journalist recently said about what's happening in Artsakh and Armenia, uh, she said, Armenians are not West enough or white enough for the Western world to care. And unfortunately, I think this is uh, another example of this where people are uh, either not aware or if they are, they sort of just shrug their shoulders. It's just it's just unfathomable. Everything you're saying is hitting home for me. And I'm thinking of all the similarities and how this has been a pattern for for so long. You know, take first taking away the men the stronger sort of bodies that can actually protect and women fall victim and children fall victim. And then they're enslaved and they're married off and then they're, they're in absolute, absolute terror 
not only for their lives, but they're for kids. <clears throat> and some of them keep quiet because they just don't trust that if they left, that they're not going to come after them and kill them or worse, their kids. This sort of cycle has is so similar. I don't understand how I don't. Well, first, you know, I don't understand why more women's rights groups, Western women's rights groups are not on this. I mean, this has been so well documented. One of the activists won a Nobel Peace Prize, correct, in 2018. You know, this is it's just it's unconscionable what our media chooses to cover and not cover and what it's based on to think that this happened this genocide happened like less than 10 years ago and all these women are missing and there should be you know women's groups all human rights groups should just be on this i've met Yazidi people in armenia there's a there's a pretty good community there's a beautiful temple and uh, everyone has just these stories these like terrible stories to tell this is The Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. Uh, I am your host, Vic Jarami, and you are listening to my interview with Pari Ibrahim, who is the founder and executive director of the Free Izidi Foundation. We are discussing uh, the genocide uh, against the Izidi people uh, perpetrated by ISIS in 2014 and much more. Your foundation, um, you you explained a little bit about what you're doing. You're trying to like uh, document, hold to account, find, fight, advocate, house, transfer when needed, when wanted, and 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 all of that. Um, what are some of the uh, other challenges that you're having? I think one of the things, and you were talking about media, is that like. Today, something is a very hot topic and tomorrow it's forgotten. It's a very scary thing how quick and fast this goes because my people are still living in tents, like nine years after the genocide, still living in tents, unable to go back home. Iraq has an annual budget for 2023 is $153 billion. Everyone we ask for support for, they say like, well, Iraq is rich. It's a middle income country. Why should our taxpayers support Yazidis, when Iraq has so much wealth, what can you then say to them, right? Like, yes, Iraq has so many billions of dollars, but unfortunately, the minorities do not get any of that. And that's why our people are still living in tents. And you, you tell them that. We are, of course. They're oppressing the Yazidi majority and they don't care to, to help. And it's, it's really absurd. I mean, especially people on top. Uh, in in power positions should know this. That just because you live in a nation doesn't mean that you're treated equally. I mean, this has not been the case in the U.S. That is that is true, and unfortunately, that's why uh, a lot of opportunities uh, are um, not existing anymore. There's uh, less uh, funding and support uh, going towards Iraq. I mean, also what happened in Ukraine. You saw the amount of support that went to Ukraine. Um, sometimes I feel I feel very sad because uh, the outcry for the Yazidis was not the same. It is very unfortunate. Um, it is sad to see that like my people suffered immensely. We're very grateful that this was called a genocide. But what do you do after you call it a genocide? What form or way is there for people to recover? 
Um, and I think that there's not enough push on the Iraqi government to do something for the Yazidi community. Um, and then what we're going to see is uh, an exodus. So the Christians are leaving, just like how the Jewish community left Iraq many, many years ago. The Christians are leaving. The Yazidis are leaving. Soon enough, there will be no uh, uh, ethnic and religious minorities living in Iraq anymore. Um, and, and something that made Iraq so great is that like uh, you had people from different, uh, very diverse communities uh, living in Iraq. Uh, now you will not have that anymore. Every person you talk to wants to get out. This is not a good thing. The the tent cities, the tent communities are, are primarily in Iraq. Yeah, the internally displaced people camps are in Iraq. Um, we're talking about, I think, over 200,000 uh, displaced wow. uh, Yazidis. And are they mostly in northern Iraq? Correct. In, in the Kurdistan. Section. Yes, they are in the Kurdistan region of Iraq. This is The Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. Uh, I am your host, Vic Jarami, and you are listening to my interview with Pari Ibrahim, who is the founder and executive director of the Free Izidi Foundation. We are discussing uh, the genocide uh, against the Izidi people uh, perpetrated by ISIS in 2014 and much more. We, the U.S., assists Iraq a lot post the unnecessary war that we that we we waged against Iraq based on false information, and now we're sort of trying to clean up our mess. Wonder if there's any accountability where our government officials can be pushed to the State Department and say this is the mess that we created that resulted in the genocide and people are living in tents. Some of this budget, some of this help, this money we're giving to Iraq, should be earmarked for. Izidi people? Or, or is that too much to ask? Like, it's just too high up? Well, so there's a few, there's a few things like, obviously, there's a thing that like, uh, the war in Iraq did not have any grounds. Um, and when you do so, you cannot just pull out whenever you want to, you're leaving a uh, state like Iraq, uh, full of American weapons. It is very important to understand like, okay, where do these American weapons go? Because when the Islamic State came and the Iraqi army left, that was it. Those American weapons got in the hands of those who were bad, the Islamic State. Um, so it is very, very much like what kind of responsibility does every country take, right? Um, for many, many years, like I was a child from um, uh, I think it was Operation Provide Comfort uh, in 1991, uh, when again, uh, everyone came to uh, rescue uh, those in need. And we were in the camps in uh, Turkey. Finally, we were brought to the Netherlands and we started a new life. Um, but what I'm saying is like, you had this war in Iraq happening uh, on uh, no legal grounds for many years. There were so many people who said that the dictatorship of the Islamic uh, of of uh, the Saddam Hussein regime, uh, they were killing people, they were massacring people. Uh, um, you can see what they did in Halabja, like nobody was safe, and but nobody did anything against Saddam because Saddam was a. Uh, um, um, ally at that point uh, of many countries, yeah. right? And But until he was not, then all of a sudden things changed. 
but it was never on the basis of all the torture that the people suffered or people like me who had to flee their country because it was not safe anymore. I was three years old. My family fled with, with, with whatever they had in their hands. And the same thing with like the Islamic State. You leave American weapons there. Like, and I'll be very honest, like the American, uh, uh, um, like State Department, they've been really good in supporting the Yazidi community through our organization. And we're very, very grateful. Right. Um, and we have been looking into ways, like for example, I'll, I'll mention one thing to you. Like um, there was this case against Lafarge in France and we're one of the civil parties. So Lafarge made payoffs to the Islamic State. And one way or the other, they used the U.S. banking system. And anybody who uses the U.S. banking system agrees to not do anything related to supporting any terrorist organization or like in any way or any involvement whatsoever. And Lafarge pled guilty in the United States. And they had to pay, I think, $777 million to uh, the U.S. Treasury, the Department of Justice. And that money goes to the U.S. Treasury. And we're trying to push that this money should go to the victims of the Islamic State right. because, of course, uh, uh, the U.S. Uh, spend a lot of money to uh, start to fight against the Islamic State. But who were really the victims of the Islamic State? That money, and I know that like some of it will go to U.S. victims, but what about all the victims who are living in Iraq who are not U.S. citizens? They don't get any of all that money? Because of our behavior. So there's there's many questions about like how can communities that suffer from wrong decision making from uh, um, wrong political decisions eventually get back what they deserve like reparations or whatsoever? I think there's a a big question mark to that, right? So. I don't think it is up to Free City Foundation to do any work on that. We are doing a lot on justice and accountability in the form for uh, uh, ensuring that those who committed any crimes or were in any way whatsoever involved in supporting the Islamic State, we go after them. And I will say we are grateful for the support that the, uh, the United States is giving to the Yazidi community because many of the other countries, they do not support Yazidis. That's that's um, too bad, but I am pleasantly surprised that that the U.S. is taking some action and some accountability. This is the Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK ninety point seven FM. Uh, I am your host, Vic Jarami, and you are listening to my interview with Pari Ibrahim, who is the founder and executive director of the Free Izidi Foundation. We are discussing. Uh, the genocide uh, against the Izidi people uh, perpetrated by ISIS in 2014 and much more. Hari, where are some of the biggest communities of Izidis living in the U.S.? The Yazidis live majority in Nebraska. That is one place where everyone ends up. Uh, probably a few families ended up in Nebraska. And since then, everyone has come to Nebraska. I mean, um, that's I very think, interesting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, also, everyone always asks me, where do the Yazidis live in the U.S.? And when I say Nebraska, they're like, what? That is so strange. And I guess when you come to the U.S., you don't really choose where you want to live. And right, that's right. the place where the Yazidis were put. Yeah, it makes it makes total sense. People who are listening, you know, your story, the, the struggle of Yazidi people, what would you want them to know or do? Is there like a call to action? 
well, it's always, we always ask for support to keep our services going. We do a lot of things for EZD women and children. One of the things is that we try to create space where women can learn different things and then eventually earn an income. We started our own brand called Chunky Animals. And so the women are all making these little stuffed animals. Oh, wow. They're actually earning an income from this. So that's really nice because it's finally not uh, like waiting for handouts. Instead, they're creating something and they're able to sell all the items um, and they're able to feed their children. Uh, When I say like all these people are still living in tents, a lot of the people are poor. They don't have any money. They don't have any income. Um, They really depend on humanitarian aid. So anybody who can support our organization to create these kind of things so that the women can earn an income, that would be great too. Um, You can give us the website, uh, the URL. Yes, I will give that to you, freeazidi.org. And through that, they can help or they can support the birthday party. We opened a, a bakery and cafe called Sugar is Sweet. Many of the children have been now living in the tents for nine years. Uh, A lot of them are born in the tents in displacement. And so a lot of these kids have never had their birthday party celebrated. And what we do is we ask people to donate to a birthday party. And once they donate, we celebrate the birthday of this child and our uh, team members, um, the beneficiaries, they get trained uh, and they're now able to bake cakes and they make cakes for the kids. And we create a whole party for this child. And, you know, I think many who are from the Middle East, they understand that um, in the West, birthday celebrations are like such a great thing. But many kids in the Middle East, they do not get their birthday celebrated for whatever reason. And I think this is a really good way for people to help out, pay for a birthday. Fantastic. What a great idea. What a great gift to give to someone, you know, to someone who has everything to to just go on your website and donate 10 birthdays and and present the certificate to someone and say here you you gave three kids or 10 kids uh birthday parties yeah Um, will you spell out your website your url uh yeah www.freeyazidi f-r-e-e-y-e-z-i-d-i dot org o-r-g Fantastic. Uh, thank you. This is The Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. Uh, I am your host, Vic Jurami, and you are listening to my interview with Pari Ibrahim, who is the founder and executive director of the Free Izidi Foundation. We are discussing uh, the genocide uh, against the Izidi people uh, perpetrated by ISIS in 2014 and much more. Fari, is there any question I should have asked that I missed or anything you want to add? Well, I think it is very important that when people hear this interview, that they start questioning like, okay, who do I know who can do something for the Yazidi women who are still in captivity, for those children who are still in captivity? Because I think it is a stain on humanity that these women are still lost. And I always say those who are lost are not lost forever because we need to go and find them. It cannot be that we have given up hope. And I hope that people after this interview 
realize that that is the case and they find it somewhere in their heart to go and look for more support for this cause. Absolutely. Well said. Um, so all the all the big prominent feminists, Gloria Steinem, Cher, Madonna, Barbara Streisand, Jane Fonda, if you're listening, women need your help. I don't know what to say. It's just overwhelming. You're doing a God's work, as they say. It's just incredible. I can only imagine how overwhelming it is for you. Uh, thank you so much. I want to say one last thing. You know, I did start the organization by myself with 300 euro. We're now an organization that's one and a half to two million dollar organization. But I couldn't have done it with all the staff members we have been able to gather and it has made FYF stronger. So I want to just also give credit for those like I call them the unsung heroes. The staff members who are literally working in the camps every single day, some of them live in the camps, and I'm just always so proud of all of them for doing the work they're doing. And without them, this would never exist as well. Absolutely. You're, it's incredible. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I wish you the best of luck. And uh, I do hope truly that we talk again soon. And they're you know, happy developments then. Agree. Yes. Always look for the positive. Thank you so much. Thanks, Barry. There you have it. That's my interview with uh, Pari Ibrahim. Uh, Pari, thank you so much for being on the show, sharing you know your story and uh, your strength and hope. Uh, I wish you luck and hope to chat with you again soon. Before we go, I'd like to thank my producer, Ricky Herrera, without whom this show would not be possible. And KPFK, the station that brings you unfiltered and commercial-free news, opinion, and hopefully some inspiration. Thank you for joining me today on The Blunt Post with Vic. For more information, please visit thebluntpost.com. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Vic Jarami, at V-I-C-G-E-R-A-M-I. Thank you. The Blunt Post with Vic.